Greetings, anthropology enthusiasts. I am Shane Skaggs, and you are listening to A Story of Us, a podcast led by the anthropology graduate students at The Ohio State University. This podcast is dedicated to anthropological research and practice, so stay tuned to hear more about our humanity and beyond. You can find all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. If you enjoy our content, please leave us an epic review or share this podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues. Or you could just give us a shout out on social media. Be sure to follow A Story of Us on Instagram, at A Story of Us OSU. For additional content, to learn about our other events and our programs, or to just learn more about anthropology in general, follow the Anthropology Public Outreach Program on Instagram, at Ohio State APOP, or check out our website, u.osu.edu slash APOP. This is the fifth episode in our engagement series, and today we are joined by Dr. Mandy Agnew, a biological anthropologist and an alumna of our graduate program in anthropology here at Ohio State. Dr. Agnew is currently an associate professor in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, an affiliated faculty member for the Ohio State Anthropology Department, and she is the director of the Skeletal Biology Research Laboratory in the Injury Biomechanics Research Center. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Agnew. Thank you. Happy to be here. So the question we love to ask everyone that comes on the podcast is, what is your personal definition of anthropology? That's a great question. For me, I, I have to define it regularly, actually, because my collaborators um, on a daily basis are mostly non-anthropologists. So when they ask me, like, what is anthropology and what is your contribution to the work that we're doing? The simplest explanation that I give to them is I study and what I bring to the table is the aspect of human variation and, and everything associated um, with human variation. Usually that's more on the biological side, but of course what I try to emphasize is an anthropological perspective, right? So that evolutionary history that I wanna make sure is brought through in all of our scientific questions and how we're, um, we're applying our knowledge, but also that human variation is a huge part uh, of everything that we apply to practical situations in the real world. And I can explain you know, more about that later, but to me, anthropology is everything human. Um, and, <laughs> and, and that's the simplest explanation because you know, for a lot of people that aren't familiar with anthropology, uh, it's the study of dinosaurs, which of course we know is, is not the case. So um, the, the simplest way to narrow that down is no, not dinosaurs, um, but, but humans instead. I love that definition, anything human. If there's humans involved, we study it. But I really think it's important that you mentioned that there's a, a big focus on human variation in anthropology, and that's part of the perspective that we use. So how did you become a scientist and an anthropologist? What's your origin story? I didn't know it at the time, but but looking back, I've actually thought about this quite quite a bit. And my grandfathers, both my paternal and my maternal grandfathers, I think really shaped me into the scientist that I am today. My grandfather, that is my father's father, was a, a school teacher. He taught high school biology, 
and I was his first grandchild. So of course his favorite. And um, he, he drug me everywhere with him, which was often to his classroom where I was infatuated with all of the specimens that he had in jars. Back then they were, you know, mayonnaise jars <laughs> on shelves on the walls. And, and I remember every Saturday morning when we had to go in and feed the fish, it was one specific shark that I just had to see every single Saturday and he'd get it down off the shelf and we'd talk about it. And I, I didn't realize um, because I was only five years old when he passed away. And, and I have very vivid memories of him when I was young. And I didn't realize until much later that I think that my um, my real infatuation with biology came from him. And he was a fantastic teacher. So I'm told um, from, from everyone in his classroom. But for me as a kid, uh, he was also constantly teaching me things. So he really inspired me, I think, at a very, very young age. And then my maternal grandfather is uh, still with us, and he is a naturalist through and through. He's almost 80 years old, still sleeping out in the woods, studying, you know, the natural world around him. Ever since I could walk and understand uh, what he had to share with the world was explaining to me everything about the outdoors. This is how we identify this tree or this species of bird just by, um, you know, the, the colors on their wings or, the, or the, the song that they sing. And so the natural world and studying the natural world around me was really, um, was really inspired by him and his contributions. And again, at the time, I didn't really think much of it. And looking back, I, I very much think that he really shaped me into a scientist, especially a biologist. He has a very funny picture of me, actually, because he was always getting me to, to think about the scientific side of things. There was nothing that would disturb him or gross him out. And I think that that has translated to me as well. He has this picture of me as, I don't know, maybe a six or seven year old in my bathing suit coming back from the pond. And the picture is, is from behind because I had, I would not have allowed him probably to take this picture of me being that it's embarrassing now, but it's from behind. And it shows me carrying a dead woodchuck down the road that I had scraped up off of the road where it had probably died a horrific death. And I was, obsessed with, I had this opportunity, right, to, to look at this animal and to study it because it wasn't going to bite me at that point. So I took this dead animal home with us. Um, and <laughs> I don't quite remember how the story goes after that, but obviously my family felt like it was worth capturing. And now looking back, that makes total sense because I am constantly studying death and, you know, biology after death. And so uh, that definitely uh, shaped my path going forward. <laughs> so super cool to hear about your first necropsy, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm sure my grandmother was super thrilled that I, I, I guarantee I brought it in the house. She was always yelling at me for bringing live animals in the house, mostly snakes, which she did not appreciate. But I'm not sure if dead or alive would, would be better in this case. <laughs> Really, really cool to hear about the intergenerational influence on you as a scientist. So then why anthropology? Why rather than, you know, biology or naturalism or any of the other kind of paths you could have taken? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and it took me a long time to figure that out, I would say. I, 
pretty sure as an undergraduate, I was undeclared for my major for three years as I jumped from one major to the next. All scientific in nature. I think I started in chemistry and then I jumped to biology. And I come from a really small rural town in Western New York where, you know, the science that we we got taught in high school was, you know, the hard sciences. We had earth science and biology and physics and that kind of stuff. But anthropology wasn't something that I was familiar with. I had never even heard that term before I got to um, to university. And I did my undergraduate at the State University of New York in Potsdam, which is north of the Adirondacks and pretty pretty far north up there in New York. So it was, a, I, w- I would say, a, a cultural shock to, to get out of my small town. Now I did go to yet another small town. Potsdam's not all that, that big. But of course, with the university there, there were additional influences and I was exposed to a lot of other disciplines that I didn't even know exist, anthropology being one. So it took me a while to find anthropology because when I thought of being a scientist, it was biology or chemistry, right? And my dad is uh, actually a mechanical engineer. So of course, um, physics was a big one as well. And I appreciated all that, but they were so siloed and I, and I didn't seem to really find my passion until I accidentally discovered a biological anthropology course. It was probably an intro to physical course. I don't remember the exact course name, but I remember taking it over the summer and thinking, you know, this would satisfy some general education credit in my third year or so. And I had the, um, the fantastic opportunity to work with Dr. Bethany Usher, who is a great biological anthropologist. She's now at George Mason University. And at the time, you know, there were no graduate degrees at Potsdam, I think maybe other than in education. So um, undergraduates there had this awesome opportunity to have, you know, a lot of one-on-one time with the, the faculty there. And she taught this course and she inspired me and I was just infatuated with it. And And it was just an intro course, right? So we we talked about all of the things that, you know, we talk about in our, our intro courses here uh, in terms of physical anthropology. And uh, there was no part of it that I didn't love immediately. And I, I knew I was always interested in biology, but as soon as she was able to apply it to the human, right, and into our um, evolutionary history, I was hooked. And I thought, oh, well, this is biology, but I don't have to talk about plants. And I love and appreciate plants, but I'm not sure that that's where I want to spend my career, right? So, um, so I was really able to hone in on the biology of humans, right, which is how I described it at the time, not really understanding that anthropology was an entire field of study and, and that, you know, I wasn't isolated in my infatuation and, uh, of learning those things. So I stumbled on anthropology on accident. And so I'm constantly telling students now, it might not be as easy to identify exactly from the get-go what you want to be and what you want to do. It might be a lot easier to narrow it down by crossing the things off the list that you don't want to do. And so that's kind of how I stumbled on anthropology because I was like, okay, enough with chemistry. That's great. It's very important, but I know that I can't spend my days doing this. And the same thing with biology. I found myself doing uh, chlorophyll experiments and and really kind of <laughs> not enjoying myself as much. So it was easy to say, okay, these are the things I don't want to do. And then the anthropology hit me and I was hooked. 
I'm not sure if that actually answered your question or not. <laughs> I think it does. Okay. And it's a story that, you know, I personally relate to because I had the same experience of these disciplines are very siloed. Where's the playground where I can think about a lot of this stuff together? The other thing that you mentioned that I think is worth highlighting is that you had some mentor that really got you hooked. So it's the subject and the discipline, sure, but there was also someone in your life that really was able to teach you about that discipline. Absolutely. And that is that is so important for anyone. For me personally, Bethany and I are still great friends and I think the day I defended my dissertation, I immediately sent her an email and said, you know, you got me here. You inspired me. You put me on this path. I couldn't have done it without you. Um, and we still we still keep in touch because I do recognize, right, that I wouldn't be where I am right now without her. And she really believed in me as an undergraduate who struggled with what they were interested in and, you know, finding my passion late to find a mentor who who sees something in you, right, when, when you're not even sure if you can see it in yourself. That means a lot. Yeah, it's very, very empowering to have this wise, sage person be like, you can do what I do. So tell us about your research, though. What are some of the exciting projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, so there's a, uh, I would say, perhaps a large disconnect from my origins in anthropology to where I am now. Not that I'm doing anything so, you know, different. I'm still an anthropologist at heart. Um, but the path that I have taken has led me to a really unique place right now, I think, that gives me a lot of leverage in utilizing anthropology in many different ways. So my lab is the skeletal biology research lab. And when people ask me all the time, like, well, what are you? <laughs> How would you define yourself? And rather than saying, well, that's complicated. Where do I start? I simply refer to myself as a skeletal biologist and not because I don't want to be an anthropologist, right? But there's also this unique niche between fields that I think is so important. And it's really the future of science, right? Is to truly be multidisciplinary and understand how, you know, your knowledge and your research can be applied across fields. Um, it can be utilized in practical ways and sometimes in impractical ways. I'm, I'm a big proponent of science for the sake of science, right? That's fantastic. But at the same time, convincing someone that science for the sake of science is worth funding, right? Or um, is, is worth the time necessary to go down that path. That's a hard sell. And so you also need to really make sure that, you know, you're selling something with a practical application. So I find myself conducting research across these different fields. I have a, a field site that I've been participating in for almost 20 years in Poland, and we're excavating a medieval cemetery there. And when I'm there and I'm analyzing my data from there, I am a bioarchaeologist, right? Um, but I'm not always only a bioarchaeologist. On a, a pretty regular basis, I'm also consulting on forensic cases, especially um, where we're uh, using histomorphometry to estimate age at death. And so on those days, I wear the hat of a forensic anthropologist. Most of my days are actually spent working in the field of car crash safety. And um, most of my funded projects are actually from government and industry related to um, car safety. 
And so that translation of my knowledge into that field is really where I can say my work has practical significance that is important. And it's not necessarily just science for the sake of science, but it can save lives. And that impact, and just hearing me say that impact, that is meaningful and it's easy for people to understand, oh, this is why your work is important, right? And this is how you touch the people around you in a a real way. And so on the days that I wear that hat, yes, I'm still a skeletal biologist and I'm still an anthropologist because I'm always sneaking my anthropological perspective into everything I do. But most of my colleagues on those projects are biomedical engineers. And so we're really working together to try to identify what aspects of human variation are leading to differential fracture risk when it comes to the event of a car crash. And why is it that this individual in this car crash is at an increased risk for fracture or injury um, versus this other individual. So what are some of the ways that those insights can be applied in the real world to make people safer? Just to give you, I guess, an example of some of the work I'm doing right now, we drive around these big, (laughs) crazy, dangerous machines every day. Um, But basically, when we get in a vehicle, we're putting a lot of trust and faith in the science that went into building the vehicle and building um, and developing the restraint systems in the vehicle. So that's um, seatbelts, airbags, things like that. Those are tested and regulated by um, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, part of the Department of Transportation, our government regulation, to basically say, you know, this vehicle has a five-star crash rating, right? Or this vehicle has a four-star crash rating. But those crash ratings are established based on how well crash test dummies respond in simulated crashes, right, that you often will see um, in commercials, right, on TV. I'm sure all of our listeners have seen those, um, those videos at one point or another. Those crash test dummies then become one of the most important tools to, to say that, that one vehicle or another is safe. And so a lot of the work that we do in the lab from a biological standpoint and collect data on injury thresholds and the movement or the the kinematics that would occur in a crash, all of those data are applied to developing and improving crash test dummies. We provide the biological data right, for those injury thresholds. And then the crash test dummies are are the tool that are often used in the vehicle to set those safety standards. So there's a few steps between the data that that we collect at the level of, you know, an individual bone and how much force it takes to fracture that bone. There's a few steps between there, right, and the safety of the vehicle. But the really cool thing about our lab and our multidisciplinary center here is that, you know, we have students, faculty, and staff from all of these different disciplines that come together to try to solve these problems. So we've got engineers, anatomists, anthropologists, and we've got health sciences students, medical anthropologists, students, um, forensic anthropology students, you name it, everybody trying to, to come together to bring these perspectives together. We work directly with the, the government through NHTSA and industry sponsors as well, whether it's a car manufacturer, a restraint system manufacturer, even children's car seat manufacturers, to give them the data that we're collecting and to collaborate with them directly on this project so that they can make changes to their products or to their regulatory standards, right, that reflect the most current data. 
So I think that's really important because it's not like we're just doing science for the sake of science. We're publishing it. And then we're just hoping, right? Cross your fingers that somebody in the right place in the world sees the information that we're putting out. And we're just hoping, you know, that they implement something with it. That's not the case. We actually are working together in collaboration with these other entities so that we know that that we're collecting the data in the proper way so that they can use it to implement it and they can change their restraint system, right? Or they can change that crash test dummy or they can change the regulation. Of course, those things don't happen overnight, but at least we have a pathway for communication directly with government and industry that allows these changes to happen rather than just crossing your fingers and hoping that somebody picks up your science and uses it. So it sounds like these various stakeholders, it sounds like they're involved pretty early on in the research process. Absolutely. Are they involved initially with funding or are they involved like all the way through step by step? Every project's a little different, but we often will work with these stakeholders. And I think that's a great, a great term to use from the very beginning. So sometimes it's even before an idea is fully formulated. They might come to us and say, hey, we were kind of thinking about, you know, making these changes. Are you open to the idea of developing a project together that sort of addresses these things? In which case, you know, we can say, yeah, absolutely. And we'll sit down and we'll have a brainstorming session about what that project even looks like, how feasible it is to test some of the ideas that they've come up with, that we've come up with. And so in many cases, yeah, it's it's super critical that we're developing the ideas together right from the very start. It's not it's not very often that I or we have a great idea and we write up a huge proposal and then we pitch it and then they're like, oh yeah, this is perfect as is. Okay, we'll fund this, right? That's not really the way that it works, at least for industry or government in our world. More often, you know, we have conversations that are based on, you know, needs that they have in the field. And right from the get-go, we take feedback, we, we communicate feasibility, and, um, and we develop the projects together. That's really important, I would say, in order to make sure that you have outcomes from your experiments and that your science is something that's actually usable. Something that I've been asking previous folks that have been on this series is, what is their vision for engaged anthropology? And what they usually say is, well, it's a sort of research practice where the people you work with are involved in the beginning. They have a stake in the actual research. They are interested in the questions and they can use it at the end. It sounds like that's pretty much exactly what you just described. Yep, absolutely. Um, and I know that we are very lucky. I acknowledge that. And we are, we're really unique in that. Um, because it's it's not very often, I don't think that you have such an environment where that can be fostered. Don't get me wrong, we also write proposals and, and send them off to whether it's um, the National Institute of Justice or the National Science Foundation, right? We blindly send off proposals as well. But those aren't nearly as successful outcomes, usually, as the projects that we develop with industry members or stakeholders right from the beginning. 
the people that I've talked with, they're often cultural anthropologists. And so I think it's important to like make this point of connection that the model for doing this research is like exists. It's here on campus with us. And so we don't need to recreate the wheel of how to do this engaged research. You look to folks that have different funders, different interests, you know, but, but you can kind of plug things in place. Exactly. And there's a lot of barriers. I'm not going to lie. It's not easy to to operate in this environment because you have to have a strong network of people. And I hate to say that it's all about who you know, but in a lot of ways it is. Um, And that's not a barrier that's impossible to break through, but it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and energy to create those networks. And we have that in the Injury Biomechanics Research Center, mostly because uh, Dr. John Bolte, who started the Injury Biomechanics Research Center, right? He had a lot of these contacts when he started the center almost 20 years ago. And we spend, you know, all of us, not only faculty and staff, but also our students spend a lot of time networking and not only establishing relationships with people, you know, all of these stakeholders, but then you have to maintain them. In a lot of ways, it's different from getting NSF funding, right? Because there's a lot more communication involved. So if you if you you know get a grant from NSF, you might have to write a quarterly report, even or definitely an annual report, update them on your progress, right? But they're not necessarily involved in your science all the way through. But when you have stakeholders that have developed and they're so invested in your science, they've helped develop this project right from the get-go, you know, we're running experiments today and I'm on the phone live updating them about the injuries that we're seeing in our experiments because they want to know right now. And that often means meetings all day, every day, (laughs) every single week in some cases, depending on where we are in different projects with these stakeholders. There's a lot of updating, a lot of communicating. You have to nurture those relationships, but that's how you build those trusting relationships. So when they have a problem, and and this actually happens, which sounds so foreign to a lot of anthropologists, sometimes these stakeholders will have a problem and without even really thinking through it, they'll come to us and say, hey, we have no idea how to solve this, but we have this problem can can you do this can you handle this <laughs> and and we're like yes please right we obviously only if it's feasible um but many times we're lucky enough that they come to us with funding opportunities rather than the other way around and that's not just by chance right that's because we've spent so much time and energy nurturing these relationships that they trust us they trust our science um they trust our our level of communication that we have with them um and so that's really important And that's a huge barrier, especially like you said, when it comes to cultural anthropology or the traditional grant mechanism where you're just sending it off blindly to NSF um, because you don't have that opportunity to build those relationships, right? I would love to see a different system in place. And I know that we're lucky, but I would love to see a different system for other disciplines, right? To be able to have the chance to, to do what we're doing, right? And to talk to the stakeholders and to build those relationships because then you get an outcome of your research that you know is what people are looking for. It's more generalizable. It's more applicable. It can have real impact in the world a lot sooner because you know that you've delivered what somebody else is expecting or what they want or what they can use. I want to go back to something you said about networking. You said you tell a lot of your students to focus on networking and building these trust-filled relationships. But what other kinds of advice 
besides networking would you give to students who want to pursue careers in research or who specifically want to do this kind of engaged research? Networking is very important, of course. The other thing I would say is fill your CV with real skills, real skills that are important to you and your research, but also real skills that are important to other people. At the end of the day, we all want to do science for the sake of science sometimes, but you still have to pay rent and put food on the table, <laughs> which means a real job. And sometimes that isn't because you found your dream job. Sometimes you have that opportunity because you have very useful skills. So for me, that was, you know, this faculty position that I'm in was born from learning human anatomy. And I got hired into this position specifically to teach anatomy. That wasn't part of my graduate degree. It wasn't required. It was something that was important to me to contextualize the human skeleton within the rest of the human body. I mean, it is, it is all connected, right? But it wasn't required for my degree. So I think that, that students really need to go beyond just checking the boxes, right? Okay, these are the core courses that I need to take. Um, these are the things that I know I need to do in order to graduate and get my degree. But that's the minimum criteria to be successful and to have a job these days, right? Even at the PhD level, you know, just having a PhD doesn't mean that you're going to get any job or especially your dream job, right? You have to have a whole bunch of skills that go along with it. And sometimes those are even more important. So I would say don't overlook the opportunities that you have during your education to develop skills that are maybe on the periphery of what your degree is in or what you're studying, you know, for your dissertation, because those might be the skills that get you a job. I spoke to a couple undergrads just recently, and it's really hard right now for undergrads, especially to gain opportunities with the pandemic and all the restrictions that have come along with it. They're not able to get the opportunities to do, you know, co-ops, internships, field schools, community engagement projects, like all of those things have been off the table and they have a lim very limited time before they graduate in order to acquire some of those, those opportunities and skills, and they're not being given them right now. So how are they going? to, you know, get accepted into graduate school or, or get a job. That's really, really hard. And so my advice to them was to, you know, think outside the box and to gain skills that will allow them to be a little bit ahead of the rest of the pack. You know, these were anthropology students that may have been thinking about field school and that being the one and only thing that gets them into graduate school. But I said, hey, if there's no field school opportunities, you know, how about learning uh, some statistical methods and, and learning R? Yeah, that might be a graduate level thing, but that might be the thing that you can do from your home in quarantine or in isolation from other people. That might be the thing that sets you apart from someone else learning a coding language, for example, that could be useful in almost literally every job that you could find yourself in later in life, right? <laughs> um, and there's some skills that are like that. If I could go back and do it all over again, I would have spent more time with statistical methods when I was in graduate school because that's the one thing now that I use every single day and I'm constantly having to refresh and I kick myself and think, man, this would have been really, really a good use of my time during graduate school to put more effort into, into statistics because it doesn't matter whether I'm studying injury biomechanics or I'm in the field doing bioarchaeology, right? Statistics plays a role in every single scientific project that I'm inserted in. 
So it brings up a question, like if you're thinking about an undergrad program and we'll just be coarse about it, you know, you've got theory, you've got methods, what, what are your percentages? How much theory do you want to focus on? How much methods do you want to focus on? Theory is very important to give you perspective. And I do think that there's a general lack of appreciation for theory in, you know, some programs, in some jobs, in some positions. But at the end of the day, I don't think that a strong foundation in theory is what gets people hired and is what makes people successful, at least in the academic system or in the industry system, right? Especially in the industry system, I would say, um, that we often operate in. The methods and the skills are critical in order to maximize your marketability, to be honest, right? And you can be a great a great theorist, but you might not have a job at the end of the day, unfortunately, right? And I'm not saying it because I don't value it. I do, but industry doesn't. In some academic settings, yes, you know, theory is very valued and it should be the uh, the foundation of a lot of what we do, but you're not going to get a job based on your theoretical frameworks that you've established alone. And, and I say that from a very biased position, right? Because I'm in this multidisciplinary environment where, you know, I'm working with engineers every day and I'm talking to industry members who are funding our projects every day, right? Not very often does the theoretical framework that that I have learned and established, not very often does it come up. Sure, it's it's intertwined in some of my perspectives, but that's not what get me gets me funding. Having practical application of your data, of your science, of the things that you can do, that's that's what's going to set you apart, right, from others. I think it's a really important point of view to get across the importance of skills and transferability of skills. So normally at this point, I would ask, what is your vision for engaged anthropology? But I feel like you've laid it out for us pretty clear just by your general research practice. So to wrap up, maybe I'll ask a different question. So whether it's in a particular field of your interest or whether it's in this multidisciplinary sphere, what are a couple of the big open questions that they're just unresolved, things that are going to be, you know, big in the next 10 years? <laughs> I guess my, the easy answer to that is the, the thing that I started with at the beginning, right? Uh, when you asked me to define anthropology and it's human variation. We still don't know a lot about human variation. And that's because, of course, humans are changing always. I hate to say that we've skipped a lot, but there are so many research questions still to be asked in terms of understanding human variation. We tend to, especially um, people in my position that are working directly with government and industry, they're trying to either affect uh, a regulation or they're trying to build a product. And in their product, let's say it's something to do with a, an airbag or a seatbelt, right? Um, their product needs to, to save lives and improve the quality of human life or, or to save human lives. So they want the answer, black and white. Does A or B more effectively mitigate injury risk? And... <laughs> And it's never as easy, it's never black and white, and it's never as easy as, oh, well, A, because my answer always, and they hate this, is, well, it depends. 
it depends on, you know, how we're testing it. It depends on who we're testing it on, right? Because every human being is, is so different. A lot of times, especially in industry, and I'm guilty of it too, right, is sort of skipping to the end and say, okay, well, if we had to pick her a black and white answer, okay, I'll go with A. Because maybe in 60% of the cases, right, it is A. But what about those other 40%? We can just not, you know, save those other 40%. My big thing is why. I, I think this was the thing that probably annoyed uh, my grandfathers the most when I was a young child and they were teaching me is every time they explained something to me, my answer was, but why? 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 And so I'm still sort of <laughs> asking that in my position now, instead of just saying, well, it takes 50 Newtons to break the rib of an elderly small female, because that, that may be the case in 60% you know, of those individuals. I want to know why. What it is that makes this person so different from this person when it comes to, to measuring that difference in injury risk. And that's basic science that we tend to skip over to try to get to the black and white answer. And I understand that we have to put some sort of, we have to put some sort of safety systems in vehicles and we have to, we have to choose a vehicle design and we have to choose even medical interventions. Like we can't just say, we can't just study things forever without there being an end product, right? But I want to know why. Uh, and so I think we're, we're getting to the point where we're revisiting some of these biological basic science questions that still need to be investigated. At the level of an osteon in the bone, what makes this, this rib different from this one? At the level of a whole rib, what makes this rib different from this one? At the level of the, you know, the thorax and then at the level of the whole body, right? And then even beyond that, at the level of, well, the seating position in the vehicle. What makes this scenario versus this scenario so different in terms of injury risk? And a lot of the basic biological data hasn't been collected on large enough sample sizes across um, human specimens that allow us to say, oh, well, this is the source of the variation, right? It's because of A, B, and C that we see this differential fracture risk. We, we don't know that that simple answer yet. And until we do, I'm not sure we're going to be, you know, 100% effective at reducing injuries or preventing injuries in car crashes. So I'm a big proponent of applied research. And I'm also a big proponent of very basic science that needs to be revisited and not because nobody has studied it in the past, right? And certainly not because they didn't do a good job of studying it in the past, but we have different technology now. We have different technology now than we did one year ago or five years ago, or certainly 30 years ago. So revisiting some of these questions with new technology allows us to see the results in very different ways that could have very different implications in terms of presenting some of this. So, you know, I, there's, there's so many journal articles that exist out there, right? So when I have a, a fresh new undergraduate that's like, I don't even know, where do you even start? Like, I can't think of a research question because everything has already been studied, right? My, my mind wants to kind of explode because if I had an army of a thousand people and all of the resources in this world to investigate different scientific questions, there still wouldn't be enough time, money, or people to do it because there's so many things still yet to be investigated. And technology is changing so quickly now, right? We could study it right now and then three years completely recreate that study and get more refined results based on that technology. So there's so much work 
left to do. And that's exciting. It's also a little exhausting. <laughs> it sounds very exciting. It's it's like you're sometimes tricked by why questions that seem very direct and somewhat simple, but they end up having very deep answers that just lead you to more and more questions. Yes. Um, and I, I think personally, I know I've stumbled over that where I feel like I need to develop this very intricate idea and question. And ultimately there's really, really direct things that you need to ask that you could go on about forever. There's just an ocean of it. Yeah, and I think students also tend to get caught up in they want their work to be the end-all be-all, right? And to ultimately answer that question. And that is a deep, dark hole to get yourself into because you will be very disappointed at the end, right? (laughs) Um, Because this is certainly a marathon, right? Science is a marathon. You know, my my career is a marathon, just like everyone else's is as well. And so you really have to embrace the fact that you can ask very specific questions and you're contributing to our body of knowledge for, you know, whatever field you're in and your questions might be very small questions, but the answers to them are what future students or future academics, they use those answers to build upon to and to ask the next question and the next question. So, you know, one student thinking that they're going to ask the final question to get to that, <laughs> that final aha answer is not really realistic, right? You have to, to really think about yourself as part of the larger whole and contributing to the scientific world in that way. Otherwise, you will be disappointed because I, and you know, I have to tell most of my PhD students because everyone wants their dissertation to be like the most amazing thing that they've ever done and the most amazing thing that they will ever do. And what usually happens is that you complete your dissertation work and your conclusions are riddled with more questions than answers. <laughs> and you end up more confused at the end than you were at the beginning because now you know more, right? And the more you know, the more you should realize that you don't know. And that's the nature of science. And you just have to embrace that um, because everyone's contributing, right? It's it's about the bigger picture. (laughs) Well, before I let you go, uh, I have just one other question. Are there opportunities for undergraduate students or for prospective grad students to get involved with your lab? And if they are, how can they get in contact with you? Absolutely. Um, our, our research center, the Injury Biomechanics Research Center, is quite large. Um, we have, uh, I would say, around 50 people involved in the center now. And that is everything from five or so faculty members to some staff. We don't have any postdocs right now, but we have had postdocs in the past. We have PhD students, we have master's students, we have undergraduate students. We've even brought a few high school students in in the past so that they can gain experience as well. So we have opportunities at all levels. We also have students from across the entire university and from almost every college um, and from many different departments, ranging from, I think I have three or four on medical anthropology students right now, but any anthropology students, right, I've had in the past, we have biomedical engineers, mechanical engineers, material science engineers, we have physics students, biomedical sciences students, health sciences students, radiologic sciences students, anatomy students, I mean, you name it, we kind of have everyone from across the university. And and that's how we like it because we really value that multidisciplinary team that we are creating and everybody has something unique to contribute. So, you know, we value the different perspectives of 
for example, the um, health sciences or the, the medical anthropology student versus, um, you know, someone that's biology pre-med, they might have different perspectives and that's great. That's what we want to see. That's how we solve problems, right? Is thinking differently. We have a pretty decent, I think, waiting list right now, but we always have opportunities for undergraduates to volunteer in our lab. And that's usually um, where they start. We have um, some specific, you know, requirements in terms of time requirements and stuff. And then many times that progresses into a paid student assistant position, depending on their level of engagement in the lab and any, you know, funding that we have at the time. But all of our undergrads start out as volunteers and then often will, that will turn into sort of a paid position. We have a master's level and PhD level um, students in the lab that often, not always, are um, on graduate research as associateships, and that always varies depending on what funding from whom, which projects we have going on at any given time in the lab. So it just all depends, but we always have opportunities of some sort or another. And so I would say the easiest way to get more of an idea of the entire center and what we're doing there and our projects is to go to our website which is ibrc.osu.edu, um, and to get an idea from there. And then uh, beyond that, it's just an email um, to myself or any of the other PIs or even our, our undergraduate coordinator in the lab. All of our contact information is on that website. And, you know, we have PIs that specialize in different things. Uh, we obviously have different students that connect better or want to work under a, a certain PI. So, you know, students that are interested in getting involved can email any of us or all of us <laughs> and, uh, and explore from there. We very much are a teaching lab. We're, we really value our students in the lab and we value the opportunity to train them, not only in, you know, exactly what we're doing, but also those skills that can be transferable, right, from project to project or to, you know, a completely different discipline. So we spend a lot of time trying to, to train our students because we rely on them. These projects that we're working on are huge, multi-year, um, sometimes multi-million dollar projects. And, you know, the, the PIs and the faculty don't do all of the work in isolation. We put a lot of emphasis on training our students so then that they can lead different aspects of the projects. And if they do the work, you know, they get um, the opportunity to present to the sponsor or they get the opportunity to be the first author on the paper, right? So we expect a lot from them in terms of contributions to the team, but then they also get a lot out of that experience and that that is definitely something I hear from fellow graduate students that have worked in the research center and in your lab that they are learning a lot and they really enjoy it. So it's great that there's lots of opportunities for uh, students to get involved. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking an hour to talk with us and uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, you too, this has been fun. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode. And remember, you can find all of our previous episodes on Spotify, SoundCloud, or iTunes. Definitely leave us a review on iTunes, especially if you enjoy it, and uh, reach out to us on social media. This has been A Story of Us.